Today Noob Spirit Podcast, it's Brian Fern at Unco Learn You How on Instagram. This guy's off the chain. We had a mad chat today and we didn't even get through half the stuff we wanted to talk about. Brian, a uh, massive advocate for partner safety. Uh, we talk a bit about that. We talk about understanding variable conditions, using the right equipment for the job, um, sustainable practices. We talk about the psychological rewards of spearfishing, as well as sharing a bunch of stories, practical information. Uh, Brian really wants to help and uh, today's episode is super cool. Hey, do you want a copy of 99 Spare Recipes? The crowdfunding campaign goes to live early November. Register your interest at noobspero.com forward slash 99 recipes. That's noobspero.com forward slash 99 recipes. You will get sent an email as soon as our Kickstarter campaign goes live and you'll be able to secure yourself a some, some super cool gear. Um, a, you get the copy of the book. But B, you're going to get to maybe get a whole bunch of other stuff as well. Check it out, noobspirit.com forward slash 99 recipes. We'll tell you about that as soon as it launches. Um, huge things going on in the Noobspiro world. world. Um, this 99 Spirit Recipes editing is a behemoth of a job, but we have had more than 170 recipes submitted. Uh, a whole bunch are going to make it in the book and... It's hard to edit these recipes sometimes. My mouth's just watering. Um, have a listen, a quick listen to Spencer Allen right now about his take on the 99 Spare Recipes book. Just before we get into today's episode with Unco Brian. Hey Isaac, this is Spencer Allen. First of all, I've long been a huge fan of the podcast. I drive about an hour to the coast to dive and almost always have an episode on when I'm going out or coming home. I was excited to learn about the cookbook as one of my biggest draws into spearfishing and ocean foraging is cooking. I think there's something really cool about being able to connect what you're going after with what you're going to do with it afterward. I'm not especially great at either, but I've found with anything when you're learning, developing a good foundation of fundamentals and then experimenting to figure out what you like is a really cool way to go. I've always appreciated how much I learned from your podcast in that regard, from the well-developed perspectives of people who come on the show and share their experience. Similarly, I expect 99 Recipes to be a really great well of inspiration and ideas to draw from. I had a lot of fun putting together some of my own ideas for the cookbook from my experience here in Southern California. I'm really excited to hear how everything turns out and see the book when it's finished. And just wanted to say how much I appreciate everything you do for the community. I can't wait to get into today's episode, brought to you with proud partner, adreno.com.au. The New Spirit Podcast has been partnering with adreno.com.au for more than 100 episodes, and these guys are awesome. They have uh, huge spearfishing megastores all over the country. You can shop online or in store. Use the code NoobSpero whenever you spend more than $200, and you will automatically save $20. That's right. Use the code NoobSpero online or in store when you spend more than $200 and save 20 bucks. I love these guys. I remember the first time I brought a spear gun at adreno.com.au down at the Wollongabba store. And Adreno have been a huge part of the excitement that I have about spearfishing. Check them out at adreno.com.au. Use the code NoobSpero to save. The NoobSpero podcast is incredibly proud to be partnering with neptonics.com. It's solid gear that works, equipment you can rely on. It's the very best in spearing gear from around the planet. Neptonics is also the one-stop shop for all your spearfishing gear, particularly in the US. They got free shipping on all orders over $99 in the US. Furthermore, you can use the code NOOB10 to save 10% off on your entire shopping basket at neptonics.com. Use the code NOOBSPIRIT, neptonics.com. 
Manscaped is the best in below-the-waist grooming, designed, in fact, for groin grooming. No more awkward moments with pubes hanging out the side of your budgie smuggler. Anyway, get 20% off and free shipping with the code NOOBSPERO. One word, N-O-O-B-S-P-E-A-R-O at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code NOOBSPERO. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. Your balls will thank you and so will the girls that have to look at you in a pair of budgie smugglers. G'day Noob Sparrow community, joined by Uncle Learn You How, aka Brian Fern, or should I say Brian Fern, aka Uncle Learn You How, uh, joining me from Hawaii, uh, Hawaii, I always say it wrong, um, sorry Brian. <laughs> no problem, that's that's a, that's a local thing, you know, proper enunciation, I'm sure the same holds true where, where you guys are at. Yeah, I grew up in New Zealand and we all grew up speaking Maori. Uh, like it's part of like it's a New Zealand have two major languages, Maori and English, and uh, we 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 go to school learning Te Reo, um, so everyone um, has at least a passing understanding of elementary Maori. Anyway, um, Hawaii seems a little bit like that as well. Like you've obviously, it's it's a colonized country, or it was originally. You know, you had English settlers, but uh, does do a lot of people speak Hawaiian? Is it taught in schools? Uh, there's there are what you would call olelo which yeah. is a Hawaiian language school. Yeah. And you usually have to have a certain percentage of, of Hawaiian blood in order to attend that. Oh, wow. But they try, they try hard to keep the culture alive, but, um, you know, like any other culture, eventually it kind of gets pushed to the wayside if you don't make great efforts to maintain it. Yeah, big debate. Uh, in New Zealand, they have something similar. It's called a kōhanga which is, uh, yeah, like a similar sort of thing in preschool uh, where they, they teach in everything in Maori language. But, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a tough one, it's a tough situation sometimes. Um, what about the spearfishing in Hawaii? Is it like, is there a Hawaiians versus, like, European type thing or is it, is it very much like everyone's just a spear? Uh, I, I think the biggest delineation I could make there would be in Hawaii, we consider it more of a lifestyle than we do a sport. Like personally, whenever I hear people label spearfishing as a sport, it creates a negative connotation for me because when I hear sport, I think of competitiveness, right? So now, now we're pitting individuals against each other. And I think that's where people get into trouble because it pulls the ego into it. And it's like, I can dive deeper. I can stay down longer. I can shoot more fish than you, mm. as opposed to having that hunter gatherer sustainability aspect where I'm going out for target species. I'm going to take them in the right breeding size range, sustainable range, and I'm only going to take what I need. Mm. Right. So that's how I think of spearfishing as a lifestyle where it's meant to feed your family and only as much as you need at the time and never more. Yeah. I like it, and I, I respect that view, and, I, and it's one I share myself, to be honest. Um, but I talk to people from all different backgrounds with all different views on it. But if I'm honest, my views uh, are, are very much in line with, with the way you are presenting it. And I, I also want to encourage people, while we, we were just chatting before the show, you've just done like a series of awesome interviews about specific topics on Cast and Spear uh, podcast with John Stenstrom. He's a good man, and uh, I've only listened to one of those interviews so far, but it was really uh, awesome, Brian. Thank you. Appreciate your feedback. Cool, cool. Um, all right, so Hawaii 
it's a lifestyle of spearfishing. Like it seems like uh, I don't know. In a lot of ways, you guys seem very connected to the environment. I guess it's volcanic, um, sort of rugged islands, all coming out of you know the beautiful ocean. You guys all seem very much. A lot of Hawaiians seem in touch with their natural environment. Would that be a fair statement, or is that just uh, the touristic type um, sort of uh, propaganda about Hawaii? What would it? Is it no, I feel it's an accurate statement. When you consider that, um, let's say you were raised in the islands, you know, culturally, you are raised to hunt, gather, sustain yourself off the natural produce, meat sources that are available to you. And it's actually kind of comical if you think of people that have transplanted here from other areas, other countries, they're very dependent on the typical conveniences, you know, like if the stores were closed, they wouldn't eat. Right. Yeah, Cause well. they wouldn't know how to go out and hunt for their food. They wouldn't know how to grow their own vegetables and fruits. Mm -hmm. So I think that's just part of the culture where you're, you are raised in that, yeah. you know, so it's, it's more of a hunter's mentality and a provider's mentality than it is a recreational mentality. Do you, does that make you grateful that you've grown up in such a place? Because I know that for lots of parts, particularly in the Western world, you know, we see an increasing urbanization and disconnection from our natural environment. And a lot of people, you can't really blame them for what they do and don't know. It's just really what they've sort of grown up with. But it, it, it does, it must make you grateful for having grown up there in that culture. Yeah, definitely. I mean, growing up in the ocean, you know, and, and being a waterman and being versed in, you know, hunting in the mountains as well. And it really brings home um, sustainability, you know, because you you soon learn that your resource is limited. And if you don't respect the resource and you don't take the time to educate yourself as to the life cycles and the breeding cycles of things that you partake in, they're going to be gone. And then they're not going to be there for the next generation or the generation after. So you have a very limited resource that has to be taken care of. Both above and below the water, Hawaii has invasive species. Um, and arguably some of those invasive species, particularly above the water, um, a lot the local population seem to enjoy them. Like I can think of um, axis deer, uh, you, you've got pigs, feral pigs, uh, and below the water, you've got uh, coral trout. I forgot what you call it there. What do you call? So in the uh, in the 1950s, I believe, mm. maybe earlier, maybe later, uh, they introduced three species that are not indigenous. So that is the the roy, which yep. is known as the peacock grouper. Yep. And they have the to'au, which is the black tail snapper, and the ta'ape, which is the blue stripe snapper. Okay. And, and what happens when you, whenever you introduce something, they don't have any natural predators in that area. So they tend to overrun it. Mm. And interestingly enough, like the, the ta'ape, they'll be found in schools of hundreds to even thousands. Wow. And they will populate areas of the reef and eat all the eggs and the native species won't have a chance. And the roy are even worse to that because they're essentially a grouper which means they just swallow everything whole that will fit in their mouth. Yeah. So where, 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 did they, where were they supplanted from and um, why? 
they were brought over as a food source, like a lot of things that are introduced, right? Somebody has this great idea of, hey, you know, this, this species proliferates really well. They have a high reproduction rate. They're a good eating specimen. Mm. Let's bring it over, mm. you know? And I think what happened with the groupers, the Roy, is they've gotten a name for themselves as carrying ciguatera. Mm. And so as a result of that, people are fearful to eat them. And um, is it true? personally, I've had, uh, yeah, it's true. But the, but the thing people miss is, is ciguatera is not specific to any one species, mm. right? Like I've had ciguatera twice already. Yeah. And essentially it's a, it's a tro- toxin that builds up in your bloodstream and it is from like the dinoflagellates on the reef. Yeah. So what I have found through experience is if you don't want to get it, you avoid areas where that reef algae is more prevalent. I found that in the summer months when the water's warmer or where the rivers let out, where there's more nutrients, yep. you'll have a denser coat of that algae. Okay. And as a result, cause like the last time I had it, it was a summer month, warm water, lots of algae. And in the one week period that I got it, five other people got it in the same week, getting fish from the same area. And that ciguatoxin, uh, how long were you symptomatic for and how do you treat it? Because as far as I'm aware, you accumulated in your body like any other toxin and then at some point it then becomes extremely toxic to you. I don't know what that threshold is and I think maybe it's relative to your own personal biology, but um, speak to that. What was your experience with it? So you're, you're absolutely correct. Everybody's going to have their own individual threshold. So the thing with ciguatera toxin is it is lipid soluble, which means it's stored in your fat cells. So truly the only way to excrete that is to almost go into a ketogenic state. Like a lot of people do ketogenic dieting and you have to force your body to burn fat so you can excrete the toxin. Mm. So the two I've done this thing called the master cleanse. People can Google it, but it's pretty gnarly. I mean, you're essentially taking lemon juice, maple syrup, and cayenne pepper and water, and that's all you consume for a week to 10 days. Okay. And it's rugged, but it gets everything out of your system. A lot of the fat in your body, like, is important to the function of your body. And so... Yeah, well, it's a challenging thing. Like I've had it as well and uh, Turbo, who used to host the show with me, had it really badly. And um, anecdotally, I've also heard the ketogenic diet works as well. I haven't heard of this master cleanse approach. What about soreness? Have you – and did you find certain foods and other things brought on symptoms uh, in a more exaggerated fashion? Well, anytime you get ciguatera, you are supposed to avoid – fish for like six months, mm. which for a Spiro is very challenging. Yeah. Right? So it's hard to give up what you love so much, but that's all part of it, you know? And, um, I think what happens to a lot of people will get mercury poison from eating too much tuna. Yeah. So it's, it's a matter of having to change the dietary choices for a while. Yeah. You know, like if that means you're going to try vegetarianism for six months to a year, then that'd be a good time. Turbo discovered that there were a couple of different uh, types of ciguatera poisoning. Like it seems like in the Northern Hemisphere, particularly the Caribbean, they had a completely different 
um, type, and even the symptoms were different than the brand we get around here. Um, mm. But he noticed that down here, alcohol and coffee sometimes uh, made the symptoms worse. As, did you have any experience of anything like that? Um, no, because I, I don't drink alcohol and I wasn't drinking coffee at the time. Um, so I think I try to eat pretty clean for the most part. So um, it wasn't too hard to shake. I think anytime you're doing a severe cleanse like I did, it all kind of depends on how many toxins you have built up in your body, you know? So like if you're the, if you're the typical American fast food diet, you got a lot of sludge backed up in your system. And um, like my wife did it with me just for moral support. And she had a much rougher go and she didn't even have ciguatera just because she had more toxins built up. So she felt worse as they were eliminated. Cheap is your wife's supportive. <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. that's love right there. <laughs> that is love. All right, so we, 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 we've gone down a rabbit hole here. I want to take it all the way back to the beginning. I mean, when did you start spearfishing? Uh, I actually have been a waterman since I was four years old and um, started off bodyboarding, surfing, spearfishing. I was 10. Okay. And um, I'm pushing 50 now, so I've been spearfishing almost 40 years. Yeah, wow. Okay, cool. And have you traveled outside of your native Hawaii? Uh, the only place I tried spearfishing was we did our honeymoon down in Tahiti. Okay. And, um, you know, this Tahiti has this really amazing thing. It's called, they call it like the changing of the water where every month they have like really big tides and really big surf. And the islands are uh, encapsulated by... Uh, Atolls. Barrier reefs. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so all that water within the barrier reef it can either be clean or if it's changing of the water, it's very dirty and murky. And unfortunately, when we were there, it was that changing of the water. So the surf was really huge outside the reef, but inside was really dirty. So yeah. I didn't really get a chance. Okay. Um, now that I'm older, I'm planning on doing spearfishing trips annually, hopefully semi-annually. I'll actually be going to this October, hopefully doing a Channel Islands trip. Okay. And, um, you know, the great thing about social media is it's giving me a lot of contacts. Now I, I can actually go to Fiji or Portugal or various places and have somebody there when I get there. For sure. The global spearfishing community is alive and kicking. And uh, there's a lot of people that embrace, like you say, the lifestyle side of it. And, um, you know, the relationships and, the, and the, you know, the whole, the whole journey of spearfishing from getting up in the morning to getting home and caring for your catch, like cooking, everything. It's, it's a cool thing that we share with very few people really in the world that do what we do. So, yeah. yeah. You know, I kind of wanted to take it back um, when you asked me about culturally in Hawaii, because I know you recently had a post on your feed about using pole spears. Yep. And, and I actually commented to that, to that in the sense that when you are first learning, we really embrace the use of the pole spear for the first potentially couple of years. And the main reasons behind that is um, it really reinforces your hunting because you do not have a range that a spear gun will provide. I mean, you may have an effective range of three feet. Yep. And so you have to really figure out the species. You have to learn their behaviors, how to stock, you know, how to hide amongst the reef, camouflage yourself. 
And one of the coolest things to me about a pole spear is if you miss, you can easily reload and get two, three, four more times as long as you can keep holding your breath. Yeah, yeah. I've watched um, some of the the Ryan Myers videos where he's hunting the, the, the is it the Mempachi and some of the smaller fish there that you guys like to just fry whole. And uh, it's, yeah. I, I, I quietly envied that lifestyle. I've also seen some of Kimmy's videos, which is sort of similar. I think it's a unique um, take on, I don't know, just spearfishing for food rather than spearfishing for trophies or, you know, competition points and things like that. And uh, I quite envied it. Yeah, we, we, and we've all kind of gone through that process, right? When you first start, I'm sure you've discussed this, is when you start, you know, you, you'll shoot anything that moves, anything that comes within your kill range, right? Because you're learning. And I think the worst post that experienced people see is when someone new to, the, to it shoots something, post it up and say, is this edible? Yeah. You know, that's, that's kind of the baseline rule of spearfishing is if you, if you, if you shoot it, you eat it. Yeah. And if you don't know what it is, don't shoot it. Yeah. But I think I think also if we're all honest that unless someone was out guiding you like you, in your first few years spearfishing, you definitely shot things that you wouldn't shoot if you knew what they were. So I also think that it's like sometimes we get on our high horse and we've forgot that we did it too. Like and I think some of yeah. those some of those genuine mistakes that people make, they only make it once. And I, I was, right. When, when, once you eat a couple fish that taste like a rubber slipper or algae, you're not going <laughs> to shoot them again. <laughs> what do you think about that old chestnut though? There's no such thing as um, as 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 a shit fish. Just shit shit cooks. Ah, uh, I would disagree. I mean, I've had some <laughs> fish that are pretty unpalatable. <laughs> are you a good cook though? Yeah, you know, we eat most of the, most of the fish that I target, I eat raw. Yep. You know, I, I have only really a handful of fish at this point that I'll target. And honestly, it comes down to what my family enjoys. Yeah. Because there's really no point in me shooting anything that my kids aren't going to eat or my wife's not going to want to eat. Okay. So what are some of your staples? Uh, I, th- I would say my favorite fish to hunt is the uku. Uh, mm. Gray snapper, you guys call them jobbies in Australia. Yeah. Um, that's my favorite. You know, they pose the biggest challenge, you know, consistent quality meat, so many different ways to prepare it. Um, then I really like some of the Jack family, like the yellow spot papillo. Okay. I like Omilus, not a real big fan of the white Lulua, yeah. especially when they're big, the meat gets kind of tough. Uh, yep. We have a, about five or six different varieties of goat fish out here. Yep. You know, so that's like the Kumu, the Monacale, the Vekinono. Those are the better ones of those. Yeah. And then... Everybody likes the moo, which is the big eye emperor. Those mm. are very challenging to hunt. Yep. And then on top of that, it'd just be pelagics. You know, if I can shoot an ono, which known as a wahoo or mahi mahi or even a shibi or an ahi. Yep. Those are pretty much the the five staples that I target. Okay, cool. I had a few recipes submitted from Hawaii for ninety nine spare recipes, and uh, there was a good, really nice goat uh, goatfish one in there that I, I really want to try. Um, I forgot the name that you called it. It was the first goatfish species that you mentioned. Uh, probably Moana Kali or Kumu. Kumu. It was Kumu, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you guys are sport there. Like you've got a good variety. Um and you yeah, you you get a good mix of both like really difficult reef species and pelagic species. What do you do when people say uh, you know, like a lot of people live in countries and areas where visibility's 
typically, you know, sub five metres, 15 feet. And then we look at some of the videos in Hawaii and, you know, you're looking at 10, 15 metres vers plus and, you know, um, how do you speak to that? Like uh, I'd also have to say that, you know, freediving in warm, clean water is a lot different experience than doing it in dirty cold water. Oh, definitely. I mean, if you get to wear a three mil suit and you got a hundred feet of visibility, you know, it's a different, like, I always feel like I'm in a arena, you know, like the gladiator days where they had that big Coliseum arena. I feel like when the water is really clear and deep, it gives you that sensation, right? Like you're going to battle, but the caveat to those clean conditions is you don't have that Merc as camouflage, 100%. So you can certainly see the fish, but they see you way before you see them. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where you have to uh, enlist the use of flashers, chum. I had talked about that with John. Um, You know, with the ukus, you tend to have to go straight to the bottom. You know, maybe go subterranean, find yourself a patch of sand or reef to hide out under. Mm -hmm. So I think the, the hunting techniques that you have to utilize are vastly different in those two settings. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. I really enjoy watching footage of some of the awesome deep reef hunting in Hawaii. I think um, it, it, it forces you to develop a skill set that um, that a lot of different types of spearers don't don't get to regularly practice. Um, how do how did you develop the freediving technique necessary to? begin hunting some of them at, at, at depth? Was it a, how long was your progression until you started to be able to consistently do that? And how long do you advise um, others? Well, out, out here in the islands, you're, you're kind of at the whim of what is available. So what I mean by that is there's a lot of people that can dive in that 10 to 30 foot range. And as a result of that, that zone will be fished out. So if you want to start to catch fish, you got to start diving that 50 to 70 foot range. And then as guys improve, that becomes fished out. And then you just have to keep pressing. And I'm sure this is what happened in Europe, right? Those guys got to go down to 150 feet to find those little fish that they shoot. Yeah. Right. And it just keeps getting pushed out. So you kind of have to improve your depth on necessity Mm. for hunting. You know, you're not going to find anything in 30 feet of water over here. In fairness to the Mediterranean divers, I don't know that their ocean, their sea is as nutrient dense as, you know, the Pacific and the Atlantic and, you know, some of the areas where, you know, we, we get to, you know, do what we do. Um, and I, yeah, but I, I agreed. Like multiple countries all fishing the same sort of geographical area. Like, you know, even now, you know, in the – you know, where we are with legislation and fisheries management, you imagine 100 years ago how bad it was, like, between different jurisdictions in a relatively small um, bit of bit of sea. So Yeah, completely. But I kind of, I kind of uh, curved around your question. So I want to go back to that. So mm. I think ideally, and this, this becomes part of safety, is it's really great if you can take a freediving course. You know, free diving courses are going to teach you a lot of safety aspects. They're going to teach you physiology about your body so you don't injure yourself. So you have a better sense of what your limits are, uh, how to rescue your partner if they get into trouble. So that's really great. 
One of the things I've seen a trend towards lately that is kind of upsetting, and I think it's the reason we see drownings, is people that are new to this sport seem to think that watching YouTube videos, taking a free diving course, and going with somebody else means that they can start doing what I would consider intermediate to advanced things. You know, like you don't really want to start hunting like large pelagic species with three months of diving under your belt in a free diving course. You know, I mean, one of the reasons so many people drown in Hawaii, because they may come to from an area where they're used to swimming 50 laps in a pool. So they think they're a strong swimmer, but they've never experienced the currents and the surges and the tide changes that we have here. Mm. And they get stuck in that and they get fatigued and they drown. So those are kind of concerning aspects. So what's a reasonable um, progression model? that you would – like you've got some 17, 18-year-old young guys, they come and they say, Uncle Brian, like, you know, I want to dive like Ryan Myers, you know, I want to lay in the bottom in 100 feet of water and lay there for a minute and a half and shoot an uku. How long is that going to take me if I go diving every week? What's your advice going to be to them? Uh, m- my advice to them is never compare yourself to someone else, first off, because if you're going to look at someone like Ryan Myers – Ryan Myers has a very distinct ability to dive those depths. You know, he, he did years of training. He does the conditioning. He's built for it, right? There's just certain people that are built for it and others are not. So I think that's where you can get into trouble when you begin to take someone of that caliber and make that easily attainable because it's really not, mm. right? So that's the first thing that you have to just, it's a, it's a dose of reality. And sometimes it can be a letdown to people. Yep. Um, I really think the best thing that you can do is find a solid mentor that is not going to throw ego at you and say, I can do this. How come you can't let's go, let's get it together. If I can do it, you should be able to, it doesn't work that way. Right. And, and then starting out with a three prong or a pole spear, because you got to learn your hunting tactics, right? You got to learn your way around the shallows because in the shallows is where you're going to find changing tide, the strong currents, the surge from the surf. You're going to have all these variables that exist that don't necessarily exist in deeper water when you're boat diving and you get caught in a current, you can wave your hand and get plucked out. Yep. So I think you really have to, Look at it from a humble standpoint. You know, if you can find a mentor, like I love mentoring people as long as they're humble and they listen to what they're told to do. You know, anybody can be successful if they're humble about it and they will listen. The people that are going to have a hard time are the ones that, oh, I already seen this. I know it's, I know I can do it because this guy can too. And they push too hard and then they get in trouble. And then because they don't have the experience, they don't know how to get out of trouble. Got a sweet deal for you today, guys. Go to freedivingfamily.com and learn from Adam Stern and a select team of experts on different disciplines. There's Frenzel, Advanced Frenzel, Hands-Free Equalization, Mouthful, Deep Frenzel Equalization, Bifinning Essentials. These are courses that will give you the 1% that will allow you to improve. 
Use the code SPIRO to get 20% off any course at freedivingfamily.com. Again, that's the code SPIRO to get 20% off at freedivingfamily.com. Thanks, Adam and team. Love it. The struggle is real sometimes to find a spearing buddy. Imagine if there was an app that could connect you with other people that also were looking for a spearing buddy. Well, good news. It's like a Tinder for fishing. We've got the Fishing Trips app available on iOS or Android. Download the Fishing Trips app. Use the code NoobSpero in there as our referrer and find yourself a buddy, dive safer, and get your mates onto it too with the Fishing Trips app. Sometimes with weather and commitments, it's a long time between drinks in your spearfishing journey. If you want a dry training program that can keep you in some kind of shape for spearfishing, check out Ted Hardy's 28-day freediving transformation at noobspero.com forward slash Ted. That's noobspero.com forward slash Ted. Now, the 28-day freediving transformation is just a practical dry training plan that Ted Hardy will walk you through and it will help you get results even if you can't get wet at the moment. Check it out at noobspero.com forward slash Ted. I'm turning 40 in a couple of months. I think that maybe I'm just starting to learn some of the basics about being patient. And I would say that no mm. one ever would have called me humble until I was in my late 20s. Like I just didn't listen and I was just stupid. And, uh, you know, I think I don't think I'm too far outside of the normal. What, what about the rest of these guys, Brian, that just young, dumb and full of whatever you want to say? Yeah, I mean, it, it can be dangerous and... I notice when too many of the young guys get together, it just kind kinds of turns into a cluster, right? Because now they're all they're all on top of each other. There's more than one guy down at a time. You know, you you gotta adhere to the one up, one down, because if you're both down there, who's watching you? Yep. Right. And that's that's how you get these where you see these videos where people shooting each other in the body and stuff because yep. they thought it was a fish. That should never happen, right? You should yep. never be down there with multiple people but it's kind of that mentality when you first start right you want to you want to be the guy to shoot it you want to shoot everything that moves you know you want that street cred if you will of oh yeah i shot the biggest fish of the day you know and i think that's really the most dangerous part about spearfishing is that ego driven sense of validation right and that's the biggest disservice that social media has really done for it is yeah. when you see all these people with, you know, I know you guys had like that dock of death one where everybody lines up all these fish and it's a, it's a sensitive topic. Yeah. I think there's other factors at play too with good buddy diving. Like yeah, ego is the one factor and the fact that a lot of us are young type A personalities and we're competitive. That's part of it. There's also just the sheer like, battle of wills with a fish you know like you know where mm. you're trying to coax an uku in or whatever and you know you've been down there for I don't, let's say it's 45 seconds or something and you know that if you can just hold out another 20 seconds that fish is probably going to get within range and there's those battles when you don't have a brain and a frontal lobe tempered by a lot of experience and maturity and wisdom you are sometimes just going to choose to take on those battles and and if you lose, like it's, it's your life. Like that's, that's one part of it. Yeah. That's, that's another aspect I think people neglect to consider is every day that you go spearfishing could be your last. Mm -hmm. 
You know, all it takes is a strong current, a blackout, getting tangled up in your line, shark attack, even a eel can bite you and hold you down. And there's so many variables that occur that can be outside of your control. But unless you kind of planned it out ahead of time and had contingency plans for these occurrences. Yeah. Once you go into panic mode, that's, that's the recipe for drowning. Here's another couple of scenarios I've encountered in various ways. And I, and I want to run them by you and I want to get your advice on how I think young divers or, or all divers should get around it. Um, can you hear me all right? I think we have an internet issue. Yep. Um, we're good. So I go out diving with a guy. He's pulling minute 45 uh, dives. I'm a 50-second diver. Um, I do my 50-second dive. I come up, and then my partner takes off, and he dives. Uh, you know, he he comes up in a minute 45, and then he begins his surface protocol, which is probably five minutes. And my surface protocol, meanwhile, 50 seconds times three is, you know, nearly three minutes. Let's say I do three minutes. There's going to be that disparity that continues. So I'm waiting you know, eight minutes for a dive or whatever whatever it might be because the other person is doing triple their bottom time. We, you get those issues. So you get, you can, some that can sometimes be an issue. What do you think of that? I think diving with somebody better than you is how you get better. Yeah. So, so that partner for you is the one that's going to help you grow and get better results. Yeah. Right. Now, I think the biggest thing to consider, you know, you stated earlier with that competitive nature, that's actually going to affect your progress because if you're so concerned about you're supposed to be spotting your partner, but you're distracted by a fish that's swimming by, you're no longer spotting your partner. Mm. Right. So if something were happened to him and you don't really have an excuse to that because you're yeah. always going to see more fish, you know, that's not a good enough excuse not to watch him. Yeah. That being said, a partner needs to be thought of just that. Regardless of who shoots the fish, you're both going to eat. Yep. You know, if you get to this point where, well, look what I got. You guys didn't get anything. What's wrong with you? looks like you guys are starving. Yep. You know, that's not really a partner's mentality. That's an every man for himself mentality. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when you, when you look at it that way of that guy's down there, he wasn't able to bring the fish in. You take note of the behaviors of the fish and then you can talk about it when he comes back up and create a game plan and you just keep taking turns until someone's successful. What if you're diving with someone that doesn't listen and they think they know everything and then they just like, well, not even that. They just, they dive in the wrong places at the wrong times and you know that their efforts are going to be unfruitful. Um, Sometimes it's an exercise in frustration and it's like, you can spend an hour and a half with this person following them around and, you know, and, and it being a relatively unfruitful trip because they're, they're not dropping on the pressure points. They're, they're not, they're not taking, they're not, you know, they're not saving their dive for the, the you know, the, the areas that you know are going to be fishy that, and you're diving mm. in current or something like that. What's your advice into those sort of situations? Well, I feel like when, whenever you're in the water, it's your opportunity to observe, right? Like I always call it snorkeling until a fish has actually landed and now we have progressed to spearfishing <laughs> so it doesn't even become spearfishing until something is landed yep. right so up to that point snorkeling is a complete sense of observation you know the more fruitful hunter is going to be the one that is more aware of their surroundings they're constantly checking their peripheral areas 
look behind you, look above you. Something might be right above you and you don't even notice if you're only focused on the bottom. You know, if you have tunnel vision, you're going to miss a lot of stuff, Mm. you know, and that's one of the ways that you become a better hunter is taking note of, okay, check out that species. He likes to hang out with that species. He kicks, he filters through the sand and that guy follows them. You know, so like a good example of that is if you look at like a ray, like a man, how they will look for crabs in the sand and funnel through it. And then you will have fish like the Ulua, the Trevallis follow them under them because when that ray kicks up the food, the fish is right there to grab it. So they're hunting companions, right? So those are all things that you learn over time through observation, Nobody had to tell you that, right? You can be told that, but until you learn it yourself, you'll never become a good hunter. I know several guys that are amazing free divers, 150, 200 feet. They suck at spearfishing because they don't know how to hunt, right? And you would think they would get amazing results. But if you don't know how to hunt, it doesn't matter if you can dive deep and stay down for three minutes. Yeah, for sure. Um, Can you give me some examples of like, when you've gone diving with someone and they haven't been a good buddy and you've had to have difficult conversations with them? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it can happen pretty frequently, but I think before that happens, you have a game plan on shore, right? Like what I will do if I'm, let's say you and I are going to dive and we never dove before. My first question to you is, have you had any type of safety training? Right. Cause I want to know that right off the bat. I'm also looking at the way, my partner is suited up. Like, are you one of those guys with your weight belt that's tied over in a knot on itself? You know, is your knife way down on your calf and you're not going to be able to reach it? You know, I try to look for potential hazards that could occur based on the way this person's got themselves set up. And I also want to know what their experience level is, what their comfortable depth and average bottom time is, because to be a responsible partner If I can dive 100 feet and have a two-minute breath hold, but you can only dive 30 feet and have a 40-second breath hold, it is completely irresponsible for me to take you out to 60 feet and expect you to spot me or help me if I get in trouble. Mm. Reason being, if I do get in trouble, you're not comfortable at those depths. We're now endangering both of us because you're going to feel that obligation to help. So that's, that's, you know, and then another thing I do like with the time is, If you say you're a 50 second diver and you're still on the bottom at 50 seconds, I know you're pushing your norm. I'm going to actually start to go down so I can escort you up. Yep. Right. And, but these are, these are the open communication things that you have to have with your partners. You can't just say, Hey, yeah, we're diving together. We're in the water at the same time because that's what it is. What if you are a hundred foot, two minute diver and your dive partner is a 30, 40 feet, 40 second diver. And uh, you know that, like you said before, a lot of the fish, they're in 70 feet plus or 50 feet plus anyway. What are you going to do in those situations? So we're either only diving 30 feet that day or if the person's willing, we're going to go into deeper water, but we're going to have the plan of using flashers, chum. We're going to try to bring the fish up to a water depth that that person can attain Right. So that's how you get better. Right. You have to you have to push forward into deeper water in order to get comfortable in deeper water. I've taken people out personally that said they were stuck at 30 feet. And by the end of the dive, I had them diving to 50. 
just because a little bit of coaching, a little bit of constructive criticism on maybe their technique or lack thereof, you know, so it really comes down to the mentoring, how, how much experience that person that's going with you has and how much patience they have and how willing are they to teach you? Yeah. Okay. Oh, interesting points. Um, if you are going out with other guys and they're experienced dot guys and they do things that you know are not great dive practices, how do you have those conversations? I mean, it's pretty straightforward because at that point you should know better, right? Because every, everybody that's been doing it long enough has learned a lot of their things through experience. And it really reverts back to how you were taught. You know, if you were taught to overweight yourself, you know, and that's just what you think is the right thing to do, or you were taught to shoot a fish anywhere you can, be it a gut shot or a tail shot, then that's a habit you create, right? So you have to be willing to accept that, hey, let's do a surface buoyancy test. And you can prove right there that the person's overweighted. And you can say, hey, I noticed you shot that fish in the gun and it ripped off. How about you try shooting them in the spine forward of the pectoral fin or in the head and see how that works out for you? Yeah. You know, so you kind of it's it's a matter of communication. I mean, I have no problem whatsoever providing my partner with feedback and I'll even preface it with, hey, don't don't be offended. But this is what I noticed. If you're willing, try this next time and see how that works for you. Yeah, you can um, you can burn bridges sometimes. It's a little bit of a slippery slope sometimes. Like there's a lot of people that are out there that are experienced that have still got um, sometimes unsafe, often ineffective um, dive technique. And I, you know, yeah, I, not- yeah. I mean, just because you do something for thirty years doesn't mean you're good at it. Yeah, well, even if you do something for 30 years, like it's a mindset that says like, oh, hey, I want to continually get better or, or hey, I'm the shit, just shut up, you know? Yeah, but, but that all reverts back to ego, right? It's like if you have that big chip on your shoulder because you've been doing it so long or you had some successes, yep. that's where you actually get dangerous. I mean, I had this conversation previously with something, someone in, related, in relation to safety diving, like, you know, they're, they're diving solo. They're doing hundred foot drops, two plus minute breath holds and nobody's watching them. Yeah. It's like, this is just a, it only takes once to not come home from that type of behavior. Yeah. And we do see it. We do see it. And I, I sometimes, part of the reason why I'm asking these questions is because I think sometimes we're not having the difficult conversations we should have with our dive buddies and with the people we go diving with. And mm. I, I, I want, I want to learn how to do them better and I want more people to have more difficult conversations because I think that's how we all get better. I think you look at it as a relationship, like anything else. You know, if you were to start dating a new partner, you know, you, you want to find out about their history, where they grew up, who are their friends, what kind of hobbies they have, what do they like? What's their thought on this? What's their thought on that? Mm. You know, the more time you spend with people, the more you understand their values, their ethics, yeah. their consistent actions, their inconsistent actions, whether they have poor decision-making. And that's just time spent and it's communication. And like any relationship, if that communication isn't there and it's not open and honest, that relationship will not work. Yeah. Mm. Okay. 
Good points. All right. Um, did you have any other points on buddy diving? Because I wanted to move into another area of your passion, which was uh, un- understanding variable conditions. Yeah. I mean, I think to wrap up buddy diving, you gotta have a you gotta have a partner that's either at or above your level. First off, you know, when you have too big of too great of a disparity in skill level, it's gonna be stifling for the more experienced and it's gonna be stressful for the less experienced. Yeah. So you kind of wanna follow someone a little bit more in line, maybe a notch above or so. Yeah. You also have to approach it as a partnership. You can't concern yourself with who shoots the fish, share the catch. You have to be there when your partner comes to the surface, not just looking at the surface when they're 50 feet away. If something happens, you can't get to them in time. I mean, there's so many things to good partnering that people just neglect to do. Yeah. I liked your point before about like, um, it's almost like you've got to switch focus, you know, you're free diving and you're hunting or you're on the surface and you're watching your buddy and and you've got to switch. You're not hunting when you're watching your buddy. You're watching your buddy. And I think sometimes, yeah, I think we, you know, if you're still scanning, scanning, observing, it's like that's okay, but you just know that you can't act on it. And I think there's a there's a level of self-control involved in that because it's if you're watching your buddy but you're kind of peripherally scanning and thinking, okay, where am I going to do my next dive and what am I going to hunt, and that's all good because I think that's just smart. That's thinking ahead. But um, your first priority is obviously safety for your buddy. Yeah, one one really good thing that will work for the people that have a hard time following suit is dive two people, one gun. Yep. Because whoever has the gun is hunting. Whoever doesn't have the gun is spotting. Yep. You you cannot drop down on your partner at the same time and take a shot because you don't have a means to do so. Yeah. I guess the only area that comes unstuck is when you want a second shot. <laughs> Yeah, but you can't, okay. you can't have your cake and eat it too. This is, yeah, I, but it's a good point. Shrek, my dude, you're killing it on the Noob Spiro podcast. Every guest you get on frosts on the spearing life and the actionable info is off the chain. Over here at Spearing Magazine HQ, it's the same, buddy. So many Noobers are submitting their adventures, lessons learned, and pictures here at spearingmagazine.com. Just wanted to say that uh, Noobers can get an international subscription here at spearingmagazine.com. They can also check out our In the Face Apparel or getting a subscription to the world's greatest spearing magazine. Check it out at spearingmagazine.com. Shrek, thanks. Love what you're doing. Jeremy out. Killfish with precision and power, sending shafts from a stable platform with Killshot spear guns. Made in the Florida Keys by Ed Martin, you're buying American-made dependable spear guns. Get $30 off any Killshot spear gun at killshotspearguns.com. Yes and amen, Nuba. That's $30 off. American-made performance spear guns at killshotspearguns.com. It says if they're in the shop or on the phone, they can cash in by saying, Crikey, mate, or the Noob Spiro podcast sent me. Check them out at killshotspearguns.com, based in the Florida Keys. Equalizing problems can be something that derail you. Not today, my friend. Go to freedivingfamily.com. Check out the, either the Friends or Advanced Friends or Video or the Mouthful and Deep Friends or Equalization course at freedivingfamily.com. You can use the code SPIRO to get 20% off any course at freedivingfamily.com. These courses are put together by Adam Stern and a select team of, of, of legends. 
and to help you overcome different issues and help you perform better. And some of them are extremely relevant for freedive spearing. Check it out at freedivingfamily.com. Use the code SPIRO to get 20% off any course. All right, understanding variable conditions. So what are the main things in terms of conditions that every Spiro needs to learn and understand and observe in their local diving area? No problem. So there is a huge difference between shore diving, a.k.a. rock hopping, or boat diving. Yeah. Right? So if you're inexperienced and you went straight from your free diving course to your dive shop to your chartered boat dive, you're dangerous. <laughs> right, because you're going to get yourself way in over your head real quick. Um, shore diving, like I said a few minutes ago, you have those added variables about shoreline ingress, egress. You know, is it a rocky coastline? Are you in a surf zone? Is there a channel? How are you going to negotiate punching through that surf line? How are you going to get back in? That's all part of your dive plan, right? We're going to go in here. Are we going to do a drift dive? Are we going to come back into the same place that we're going out from? What effect is the tide going to have on the current, mm. right? So you can be out and the current can pull left all day. And when the tide switches, it pulls right. Mm. You know, so if you were hoping to do a downhill drift, that foiled your plan. Yeah. yeah. Right. So these are kind of the variables that every spear fisherman needs to learn, right? how to read a tide chart, a solid wind and surf report, understanding the moon phases, how that affects the tides and the fish, you know, understanding topography, you know, when you have a drop off, expect there to be a current. When you have a bay with a surf situation, energy comes in one side of the bay, it has to go out the other. Long show. Right? What do you do when you get stuck in the current? You don't, you don't power out straight against it. You got to go with it parallel to the beach till you're out of it. Even if that means coming in a mile further down than you anticipated, mm -hmm. you know, better, better to make it in and have a long track back to the truck than never make it in at all. In terms of finding a mentor, learning about your local conditions, your local area and things like that. How do people do that in, in Hawaii? Is it is there, are there spearfishing clubs? Uh, do you go to a local spearfishing retail shop? Do you just holler out to someone on like the internet? What, what, what's, the, what's the most effective strategy to find someone that can show you the ropes? Yeah, I've seen social media, you know, groups that looking for a partner, right? So I, so I can post up there, hey, I live on this island, on this side. I'm going to go diving tomorrow. Anybody available? That's one means. I mean, one of the things I do personally is if I have a day off tomorrow and I don't have a partner, I might just put a post on my story yeah. looking for a partner for tomorrow. Right. Yeah. Um, I remember one time I did, I did something on Facebook that almost sounded like a dating ad. <laughs> you know, I said, looking for an experienced diver. That's a solid partner that is sustainable that, you know, I, I listed all these things that were important to me and a partner. Yeah. And I actually had a guy contact me and answer to it and say, you know, what intrigued me was your focus on safety and sustainability. And that guy became a friend of mine and a dive partner just through that post. Yeah, right. So you kind of got to put yourself out there. Um, you know, the more you do in the dive community, the more people you get to know. 
I normally and just put out a, a post. I say, look, looking for a like-minded dive buddy must exist predominantly on a diet of KFC and Doritos, uh, have a pathetic dive reflex and generally be happy to come home with not many fish. <laughs> yeah. There you go. But but who is that attracting? It's attracting right? it's attracting like-minded individuals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, if, if I know like in California, they have a lot of clubs, mm. right? Like all along the coast, they have all these different clubs, mm. which to me is a great idea yep. because it, it really enables the newer diver to have exposure to a more experienced, mature diver. Yeah. Right. And, and the extent at which they take it, I'm not sure. You know, I don't know if the more mature divers are actually taking the newer divers out and mentoring them willfully, or if they're just like in a meeting setting and saying, Hey guys, these are some of the things that you haven't learned yet. These are some of my suggestions, take it or leave it. You know, um, I know in Hawaii, the, the clubs are very different because it's that mentality of most people were taught by like a family member, right? Like their dad taught them, their uncle taught them, whatever. So they, they learned however that person taught them, whether it was a good way or a terrible way. Mm-hmm. Right. And then their partners kind of learn the same way and you can really go the wrong way with it. Yeah. And very seldom do you go the right way with it. And because of that, you tend to get this mentality of, I know everything. Yeah. And that's the most dangerous mentality there is. Mm. Unless you're willing to admit that you don't know things and actively seek out new knowledge, you're never really going to progress. So in case you're going to ask me, how do you get someone out of that mindset? You have to explain to them, well, how long have you been diving? And how long have you been stuck at 30 feet shooting these fish? Yeah. Right. And they say, oh, the whole time they say, "Okay, well, this is why. Right. If you want to break that chain, you got to maybe take a freediving class. You got to go take a safety course. You got to go dive with somebody that's better than you and be willing to shut up and listen to what they're telling you. Otherwise, you're never going to progress. Right. Everybody sees it and they want to get to a level, but they're not willing to get there which is a poor mentality because it's the journey as opposed to the destination is where you learn. Yeah. Nice. Cool. All right. Um, With like conditions are very subject to your local context. Um, Obviously, you know, like learning how to read uh, marine weather forecasts, like understand swell, tide, you know, flood, ebb ebb current, thinking about like – entry and exit points, these are all massive things. They seem to be very geographically bound. Like you've almost – you have to learn about your local area from another local person. You're not going to learn it from someone on the internet. Um, Correct. So the impetus is on definitely finding some local partners. Um, So you're suggesting like you can put up social media posts. What if you just don't have anyone in your network that goes spearfishing? And, and you don't have clubs. I mean, what, what would be your recommendation in those situations? I mean, a good, a good resource, especially locally, is talking to lifeguards. Yep. Because lifeguards are lifetime watermen. You know, all these guys dive, surf, fish for the most part, right? So, and they're hap- that's their job, right? They don't want to see anybody get into trouble. So, yep. you know, a, life, a lifeguarded beach, whether it's 
full of fish or not is a great place to learn. And there's that level of communication. Hey, I'm not very experienced. I'm thinking of going out here. Is there anything I need to know? Yeah. And they'll say, oh, yeah, watch out for that surf line. It's a shallow shelf. There's a current that runs there. You know, stay in this area, you know, because they don't want to have to run out there and save everybody that has their one piece mass snorkel combo. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with a bag of peas in their hand. <laughs> yeah, cool. Have you found any online resources for learning about conditions and weather for spearfishing? Oh, that, that's a tough one because I, I think that one really comes with putting yourself in the mix, right? Yeah. And, I mean, you don't really understand how strong a current can be until you get stuck in one. Yeah. You know, and, and, and the, one of the huge problems with diving deep is you don't understand that there's thermocline changes, there's variable currents, right? So, like, if you say, oh, I can dive 100 feet, but you didn't anticipate the fact that there's a, a down drawing current or a horizontal current at 80 feet, that means when you're coming up, you're not coming straight up. You're you're coming up in a diagonal fashion, and yeah. you didn't anticipate that additional need of energy expenditure and oxygen use. Yeah. How do you, this is a question I'm thinking about asking more and more guests? It's how do you know when you're too deep? Uh, I mean, you're you're unless you're trained to dive deep, your body's going to tell you, right? Because every 33 feet is a new atmosphere of pressure. Your lungs shrink. Everything clamps down. I mean, one of the one of the most valuable things that I learned from Ted Hardy of immersion, he teaches a lot of really excellent courses um, is the flexibility of your diaphragm plays a huge role because if you don't have a flexible diaphragm, when your chest shrinks down, it creates that sense of impending doom, Mm. right? The walls close in and now you're not comfortable anymore and you can almost slip into a panic mode. Or you get that trachea squeeze, Mm. or you can even cause some trauma to your lungs if you're not appropriately trained. Mm. So it's not, you know, to to take that stance of, well, I could dive 30 feet. And then this weekend I took a free diving course. Now I can go hunt at 80 feet because I dove a line and touched the, touched the plate once. Yeah. It doesn't work that way, right? You have to train your body. It has to go through a sequence of adaptation. It takes time. Yeah. There's no there's no quick and dirty way to get to 100 feet and hunt there. Yeah, sometimes I've caught myself and I might be down, you know, I might be down and I've just I've just gone too deep and I look up, you know, and I might be able to see the, you know, the surface and I'm just like, holy moly, it's a long way, you know. And I think particularly guys in their early days when they start, you know, you get a brand new set of fins and, you know, in, in 20 seconds you can get down to 80 feet, you know. You look it yeah. up at the surface well, and you don't really have the ability to dive that deep. Um, it's just, Well, it's, once once you're negatively buoyant, you know, if you have good technique, you're going to start dropping like a stone. And the, the deeper you go, the faster you drop, right? Mm. And what people don't take into account is you really only had to kick the first 30 or 40 feet. Mm. But coming back up, you got to start from a stop you're under pressure. You've got no momentum whatsoever. You have to power your way back up at least 80 feet now from a yep. hundred foot drive. Yep. You know, and people don't consider those variables and that's how people get into trouble. Yeah. Interesting. All right. I'm moving on using right equipment for the job. Um, when and where do you see this issue in your diving context? 
I think if you're hunting for a pelagic species with your reef gun, you know, and your and your reel gets spooled and three seconds flat and you're using a single flopper and you're shooting a pelagic and they rip off that you're using the wrong gear. Yep. Right. Or if you're trying to use this 140 centimeter cannon on the reef and you wonder why you keep breaking and bending shafts, <laughs> you know, your gun's overpowered. Yeah. So that's kind of what it means to use the right piece of equipment. You know, if, if you're going to learn with a pole spear, you're hunting in shallow water, bouldery terrain, looking for specific species of fish that inhabit that area, right? If you're going to move up in deeper water, now you need a spear gun, maybe 90 to 120 range, depending upon your target species, that gives you that additional power and range and ability to hunt them. When you move out to depth and you want to shoot pelagic, you need an even larger gun, more power, thicker shaft. You want to consider doing a breakaway system, bungee to a float, right? Because if you're using a real gun in depths like that and you get spooled, now you got 180 feet of line just floating around you, it's a recipe for disaster. So I think a lot of people don't consider that mentality. They say, oh, well, this gun serves me well in this condition. It's okay. I can use it for this condition. Some things don't cross over that well. I can see this is a massive issue for you and, and possibly your dog too. He keeps barking at it. I'm thinking there's, a, there's a reef hunter that's walked past with a big blue water gun or something. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, so, like, obviously with, uh, you know, like, there's there's barriers to entry with our with our with our with our lifestyle, you know. Like, you know, you, you start off, you might be in the shallows with a pole spear, and you buy your first spear gun. You, it's, a, it's a reef gun. You're trying to do a little bit of everything with it. There's a there's a financial outlay for that equipment, and some guys are overwhelmed with you know purchasing everything. After a few years, it's okay if you've got your basic spearfishing kit, and then you you upgrade and you buy some blue water gear and you, you know, you have that there for your three blue water trips a year. And then you've got your main reef hunting gear, but I, um, he, I'm upsetting the dog again. Sorry about that. Uh, but for those guys in this, in that early days, like they, they might not be able to get all of the equipment straight away. What's your advice to them? Well, it's kind of self-limiting, right? Because mm. if you don't have the proper gear, you're putting yourself in a dangerous situation mm. right if you don't have the experience to hunt a large pelagic species and you're not properly outfitted for it you really shouldn't be there for that yeah right take the time go through that cycle of progression mm. right you shouldn't be in very deep water hunting things that are very strong and powerful if yep. you're not appropriately trained or outfitted for it so i mean that's that's the limiting factor right there is yep. your experience and your equipment. Do you like to penetrate? Great news. Penetrator Fins, today's Noob Spirit podcast sponsor, are tough as nails. Robust, dependable performers with beyond industry standard warranty. Communicate direct with Larry and his team 24-7 for all your fin inquiries at penetratorfins.com or at penetratorfins on Instagram. Baby spam finish. These things are smooth as silk. They glide through the water. They give you that awesome balance between power and efficiency. This is 
Penetrator Fins. Use the code ANOOBSPIRO to save $25 on any pair of Penetrator Fins at PenetratorFins.com. That's right, use the code ANOOBSPIRO to save $25 on any pair of Penetrator Fins at PenetratorFins.com. I just love a functional and simple spear gun that I can trust when I pull the trigger. Killshot Spear Guns utilize the finest of kiln-dried Burmese teak. Killshot Spear Guns also combine American-made parts and fine craftsmanship to bring you accurate, reliable, and simple spear guns that you can trust fish after fish. Get $30 off any Killshot Spear Gun at KillshotSpearGuns.com. Yes and amen, Uber. That's $30 off American-made performance spear guns at KillshotSpearGuns.com. I'm really sorry for this terrible accent. Brought to you by Ed Martin at KillshotSpearGuns.com. You are a dealer for Manny Sub Gear. I've had quite a bit to do with uh, with Manny Bover over the years. We've discussed and had him on the show at a few t- different uh, points in time. Um, what do you like about Manny Sub Gear? I think with Manny Sub, you are getting a premium product that is backed by physics by a man that has the time in, you know, studied it, tested it, didn't just pull it out of a hat and say, Hey, these guys are doing it. We need to get a roller muzzle out too, so we can capitalize on the marketplace. Mm. Right. I see far too many companies and I'm not going to name names, but I see too many companies that rush to bring a product to market. Right. Because something becomes a trend, something becomes popular. Yep. Hey, this guy's doing it. We got to get our version out. You got to get on the right? bandwagon. And then, and then through a great marketing campaign, maybe people will buy your stuff. Mm. But what a lot of companies neglect to do is they may not have as quality a product, they may not set it up optimally. And then there's really no customer service. The industry as a whole, the spearfishing industry, if you've been doing it long enough, there's not a lot of companies that are there for you with the customer service that you need, are able to answer the questions that may come up, right? Once the sale's made, that's it. The sale's made. Yep. Some of these companies are in different countries. They speak different languages. You got a problem with the product. You don't know the time zone. When's the right time to call them? Can you even speak the language that they're going to speak? Yeah. You can't expect them to speak your language, right? So that's those are some of the things I really love about the products, Um you know, being, having as much time in the water as I do, you kind of go through that process of, well, I'm going to buy this because it's cheaper. Yep. But then when it doesn't perform and it breaks and you end up buying the more expensive thing later, yeah. you know, it's like, well, do you want to waste your time and money on something that's subpar or would you rather just go in and get the right thing and the customer service yep. and the warranty behind it? You know, and that's what really intrigued me by the product. And, you know, I bought it and I used it and I was impressed by it. And I had conversations with Emmanuel and we really clicked with the mentality of customer service and educating people. So they're they're getting what they actually want. Like anybody that buys something from me, I like to have conversations with people, you know, because when they say they want something, I say, well, what's your intended purpose? Have you ever tried that before? You know, what are you using now? You know, and then it, and then we can kind of get to refining the right tool for the job and whether they're even ready for that piece of equipment or not. The adoption of um of, of a roller spear gun when you've 
traditionally been using a conventional gun is it's quite a difficult learning curve for a lot of people. I mean, did you, I'm, I'm taking you, you went through that transition yourself. I have, I have. And I, I think when I, the first time I tried a roller, it was a single stage roller. So what that means is it has one anchoring point on the underside of the barrel and it has one anchoring point on the spear shaft. Yep. So it kind of creates an all or nothing powering situation. And maybe in the pelagic realm, that's fine because you want power, you want range. But in a reef setting, you know, if the fish moves in front of the reef, you need to be powering down. If the fish is in a hole, you need to power way down. Mm. And I found that to be self-limiting because I would be tracking a fish on the reef and they would go in front of the rocks and I'd, I couldn't take the shot because I knew I'm going to embed my shaft into the reef because there's too much power behind it. Mm. Right. So I actually took that single roller and I converted it back to a conventional muzzled gun wow. because if you have two bands, you can actually take one band off the power yeah. down. Yep. Right. That's what a lot of people do. And that's what they like about it is that versatility. But when you learn more about rollers and the physics and the properly power them, and you get a shaft that has say a mid shaft notch and one halfway back and one all the way back, and you create a multi multi-stage roller system. Now you can power it up and power it down. Yep. Now you can shoot that fish that's in the reef. Yep. So once you, once you learn the physics behind rollers and you learn the versatility of them and the fact that you can omit recoil for the most part, and you're using the full length of the barrel with the addition of pretension. And I think that's the biggest thing between conventional guns and rollers. Conventional guns only use two thirds of the barrel to power it. Yeah. And if you want more power, you got to get a longer barrel. Yeah. And you need more rubber. Yep. I guess more rubber means yeah. I guess the issue that some people um, have is just the added complexity. Um, you know, a lot of the time you, you're going to require a double wrap shooting line path and, uh, you know, where the rubber sits it can be quite difficult. Different manufacturers have found different ways to get around this. Pretension is an issue, like uh, you can trust manufacturer specs. Um, Manning's pretty slick with, you know, the amount of research that he's put into getting his pretension right. Um, some other manufacturers definitely just wanted to get rollers out on the market without really doing the rigorous pull testing. Um, but I guess my point is is that it's a level of complexity, whereas a conventional spear gun, boom, I pull two rubbers back, I'm, I'm away laughing. With a, with a roller spear gun, um, yeah, you've just the shooting line path is generally more complicated. Um, and maintenance, and you've got to change out those... Um, the, the, the bands off more often. Um, these are some of the arguments that I've heard against them. And, uh, and it's a different shooting style. Um, even if you're using the same handle that you've sort of grown up with maybe in terms of like you, your spear gun, it, the, the way the, um, the, a shaft leaves a roller spear gun, unless you're in a swimming pool, it, it's a completely different feel. Obviously, some of us, um, what do you call it, compensate for recoil and stuff, and that affects it as well. But the... Generally, there's, there's a period, a long period of adjustment if you change over to a roller spear gun. I think with any gun, the first thing you do is you do target practice before you hunt with it. And that can be switching from a 90 to a 120. Yep. And it's the same conventional muzzle. It could be if you're switching the 
the size of the shaft, right? Because that imposes a different weight. That requires a different powering protocol. If you use a different grade of rubber, if you use a very stiff reactive rubber versus a softer, more progressive rubber, you know, there's all these variables. And I think if there's any one issue in spearfishing that people have the most issue with, that's properly powering their gun. Yeah. Right. I think that's probably the most challenging thing to learn. And the reason it's challenging is because it takes time in a controlled setting like a pool to say, okay, we're going to use this length with this shaft, with this rubber, and we're going to see what our grouping's like, and yeah. we're going to see what our penetration's like. And anytime you change one facet to that, you have to atone to it. You can't just throw a thicker shaft on and use the same rubbers you used on a thinner shaft. Yep. Right? I and I think that's where, you know, people will get into that um, sense of maybe dissatisfaction, right? When you get used to something, you get used to that compensation of recoil. Yep. You know, you, you try to go from an open track to enclosed track so you can power it up more, mm. but you have the added caveat unknowingly of friction of the track and also a vacuum effect that's created that actually slows the shaft down. Mm. Mm. Right. So there's, there's a lot of variables and you can geek out on it as much as <laughs> you want or as little as you want. You know, some people just say, just give me something in my hands. It's going to work. Yep. You know, cause anything's going to be able to, shoot the fish. If you can propel the shaft at a speed enough that maintains a nice flat trajectory, you're going to shoot fish. Yep. I was um, recently, like uh, my go-to spear guns have been Salvamar Heroes. I've got a, a 105 and a 125 and a Salvamar Hero. And re recently someone made me another, uh, I think it's a 105 centimeter single roller again. And uh, Jeep is like the first time I fired it, I just watched the shaft just take off. Like even just mm. the, like the increase in range that a roller offers over a conventional twin banded spear gun. If you've got it powered and pretensioned correctly, like they're a sweet rig and they're super accurate as long as they're, um, they've been made correctly, I think. Um, but jeepers, this gun's a, it's a joy to, it's a joy to fire, but, the problem is, is I've got used to the Salvamar molded handle grips and uh, mm. I, I actually really like that now over a, 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 a generic, more generic type blocky sort of um, handle. And um, I almost rely on the molded hand grips as to where it sits in my hand to provide me with some sort of level of, I don't know, control when I go to pull the trigger. And then fine adjustment and things like that. So it's funny how you learn about yourself. I, I agree with you though. Pull's great, but a, a lot of us just don't have the time, the energy, and I'll be honest, the will to go and, you know, test it in a controlled environment. Yeah. Yeah. But what you were saying, you know, and that's kind of the beauty of, of pipe guns, right? Is you can actually remove a handle and trigger mech and put a different one in to the mm. same barrel. And the same holds true with the muzzle. You can easily remove a conventional muzzle, put a single, a double an inverted roller head in there. Yep. You can mix and match. It's, it's kind of the cool thing as opposed to like a wood gun where it's, hand craftsmanship it is designed for a single purpose and a single configuration mm, right yeah. so you may have more of those wood guns for various conditions whereas you can have one or two pipe guns and you can configure them differently yeah that's true yeah yeah they both got some um they both got clear advantages and disadvantages i do i still like a solid wood platform sometimes 
they just they, like I don't know the control they give you sometimes in the water. It just feels nice. But you know, I'm a person that's that's growing in the sport just using pipe guns. So um, yeah, I don't know. It's good when you can have an appreciation for it all, but sort of have a understand the place and proper context for each of them as well. But um, yeah, it's unfair to say you know this wood gun is better than this pipe gun. Mm. You know, this brand is better than that brand because everybody based on what they learned with, right. You can learn with an impoverished country, a piece of wood and a rubber band and a sharpened coat hanger, you know, and if that puts food on your table, (laughs) that's, that's what works for you. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Price price is a big influence for for um, a lot of people as well, and I still think most spear guns are, are very very well priced considering how much life you get out of them, and um, it, they're very easy to maintain. Just about all spear guns are fairly easy to maintain yourself. Um, I think the role of spear gun, learning how to rig them up correctly, is an art. I haven't actually even done one myself yet, um, so I'm sure that'll be a humbling journey for me when I do go to rig one up myself. <laughs> Yeah, but the, see, that's where if you're dealing with a company that gives you resources, right? That, I mean, with with Manny Sub, Emmanuel and I have created instruction manuals. Yeah. I don't know any other company that gives you an instruction manual when you buy a spear gun from them. Yeah, you know, yeah. the instruction manual contains how to load it, how to unload it, how to properly pretension it, how how long to cut the rubber, how to make your wishbones and your bridles and mm. everything is in there. Yeah. If you're having aiming issues and to me, that's, that's gold. Right. And then if you have a question, just reach out, happy to answer it, happy to get your gun powered properly. Or if you want to change something, a variable, then we'll help you fix it. Um, um unfortunately, Brian, we're running out of time today. I'm gonna, definitely going to have to get you back for another full length interview. I think in the future, we've got a lot of stuff to talk about. We, had a stuff left on the agenda that we haven't talked about today. I will say that with the Manny sub, the the conversion kit he's got, Turbo made a video on the Noob Sparrow YouTube channel back in the day converting a, a, a Rob Allen to the, the Manny sub roller conversion kit. And uh, that vid's had over 100,000 views. Like, um, that's still a really popular product. I think it's probably the best conversion kit on the market that I've seen. And uh, the price is excellent. Any pipe gun, I think they do just does just about any pipe gun. And um, mm-hmm. people, do you do all of North America or are you just in Hawaii with uh, your many sub stuff? I'm the I'm a U.S. and Hawaii distributor. So okay, I, cool. I actually sell quite a bit to the California market. Okay. And um, But I try to leave international up to Emmanuel because yep. he's better suited to that. He has like an account with DHL and can get much better pricing. Yeah. Like if somebody from another country wanted to buy a from, gun from me, it would cost him $500 to ship it. Yeah. And yeah. it might be a hundred from him. Yeah. 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 And I think, you know, it's, it's really nice for Emmanuel as well to have somebody that's present in the U S because I think one of the, one of the reservations is, well, I don't know if I want to send my money to somebody in a different country. Yeah. Yeah what happens if I never get it or there's like this exchange rate issue or time issue, maybe there's a language barrier. So I think, you know, having a distributor or representative in the country that you're in is very helpful in that sense. hundred percent. 
So if people are in the in Hawaii or or North America, Florida, California, I'm taking it for the most part. Um, how do they reach out to you or find some of the many sub stuff over there? Sure. So I mean, you can always go to Emmanuel's website, RollerSpearGuns.com. Yeah. And if you want to go to my website, it's UncleLearnYouHow.com. How do we spell that? And so every one of my social media venues are of the same name: yeah. Instagram, TikTok. YouTube, it's all Uncle Learn You How. How do you spell it for everyone? U N K O L E A R N U H O W. All right, cool. So, Uncle Learn You How on every channel going by the sounds of it, you're on more social media than we are. <laughs> so, that's awesome, Brian. We're going to catch up again because I, like I said, I didn't even get through the agenda I'd set aside for you today, but we got through a good chunk of stuff. I felt like there was some really good information there, particularly about partner safety, uh, understanding conditions, using the right equipment for the job. It was great to discuss a little bit about roller spear guns with you. And uh, next time we'll get you back, we're going to chat sustainability. I want to hear a bit more of your story as well. But um, for today's episode, uh, Brian, I think we've uh, we've killed my time. I've, I've got to get into the swimming pool and get some some training done. <laughs> yeah. Sounds great. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Shrek. I really appreciate the opportunity. Oh, good, man. We'll catch you again soon. All right. Take care. Aloha. Guys, I hope you enjoyed Uncle Brian today. Again, like I said earlier, massive advocate for partner safety and looking after each other out there. He wants to help the spearfishing planet and the spearos in it do better. And uh, follow him on Instagram. So I'll spell it out for you. It's at U-N-K-O learn, U, the letter U, how. Uh, really cool, guys. Share some really cool information actionable stuff to help you be safer and better out there in the water that's why i had to get them on the noob story podcast so i hope you enjoyed today's episode if you want to get an early copy of 99 spare recipes again go to noobspero.com forward slash 99 recipes that crowdfunding campaign will be up and live very shortly i want to tell you about it i want you to get in and get some unique rewards for doing so as usual if you love the show leave us a review or even better become a patron a patron listener like 49 others at patreon.com forward slash become a supporter on an episode by episode basis massive thanks to our patron legends who power this show that's it for me shrek over and out thanks for listening sometimes in life you have those moments where you think i've made it generally they get crushed fairly quickly but today i knew i had made it with the noob Spirit podcast when i got an email from manscaped they make the best below-the-waist uh, trimming gear you can imagine. They sent me a care package. I got the lawnmower 4.0 as well as a pair of boxes and shit. And uh, absolutely stoked to welcome Manscaped to the Noobsphere podcast. So support for today's episode comes from them. Um, did I tell you that the lawnmower 4.0 allow you to customize your trim through additional guard lengths with sizes from 1 to 4? Also, wireless charging. The new wireless charging system uses electromagnetic induction, which can help save battery length lasting longer. I've used mine two, twice already, sitting in the drawer. Love it, super lightweight, pull it out. Bob's your uncle, you're all done in a couple of minutes. Tidy as, and uh, and I haven't charged it yet. So, and it's robust, light. I mean, what, what more do you need? Anyway, I want you to get hold of it. 
Get 20% off and free shipping with the code NoobSpiro, one word, at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. Use the code NoobSpiro, one word. Unlock your confidence. Always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. Your balls will thank you. I don't know if I'm allowed to say it, but oorah! When I say the words neptonics.com, I automatically want to say it. It is solid gear that works. It's the very best of spearing equipment and components from around the planet. Visit neptonics.com. It's solid gear that works. Visit neptonics.com. Use the code NOOB10 to save 10% off. Today's episode was an absolute banger, and so is our major sponsor, Adreno. Visit them at adreno.com.au. They have a huge range of equipment. You can find it at adreno.com.au. Use the code NoobSpear at checkout. When you shop online, you can save $20 on every purchase over $200. You can even use that code in-store at some of their huge mega stores Australia-wide. Price be guarantee on any Australian spearfishing equipment price. Again, visit them at adreno.com.au. Use the code NoobSpear. All right.